When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Choreology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 39. Is there actually truth that's transformative in this text for the life that we live now? Is there truth that sets us free from the burdens? Is there truth that's liberative for those who are oppressed? Is there truth that breaks the privileged out of the oppression of their privilege and puts them alongside the oppressed for healing and reconciliation? And the answer's always been yes. <laughs> the answer for me has always been yes. Emmy R. Kegler is the pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Northeast Minneapolis, and she's the founder and editor of Queer Grace, an encyclopedia of online resources around LGBTQ life and faith. Uh, she has her Master's in Divinity from Luther Seminary in St. Paul, and is an ordained pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Uh, She was raised in the Episcopalian Church uh, and then has spent time in evangelical circles, non-denominational traditions, uh, before finding her home in the ELCA. She pastors a small, servant-hearted community in northeast Minneapolis focused on feeding the hungry uh, and community outreach, uh, and is also the co-leader of the Queer Grace Community, uh, which is a small group of LGBTQ Christians in the Twin Cities who meet for worship, Bible study, and fellowship. Uh, Emmy talks about that a little bit more uh, at the end of the episode, so if you're in the Twin Cities area and looking for kind of a a faith home or community to just kind of explore things, be sure to check that out. Uh, She lives in St. Paul, uh, enjoys biking, uh, board games, and babysitting her fiancé's dogs. Uh, I've known Emmy for a couple years, and when when I first decided to start this podcast, Emmy was one of the first people on my list of like, this is who I want on the podcast. Uh, And I am so excited to have her on the podcast this week. Uh, we're talking about scripture uh, and our, and like kind of the complicated relationship that goes with being queer and holding to a text that for so many of us has been used to hurt and harm us in many different ways. Uh, this may be one of my favorite conversations that I've had thus far for the podcast. Uh, so maybe instead of me saying more about it, let's just go ahead and dive in. Emmy, hi, welcome. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's been a great day so far. Good, I'm glad to hear that. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, thank you for joining. I'm 
I'm really so honored to be asked. You've had such an incredible slate of folks um, from the very beginning, and it's just really an honor to join that group. So thank you. Ah, ah, Thank you. Um, So to start, (laughs) the question that I ask everyone, um, how do you identify? And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Sure. I primarily identify as queer or as a queer woman. And that has changed significantly from when I first came out, which was uh, I first realized I was gay at 14 and started coming out, I would say, officially at 16. And one of the um, one of the things that really changed that for me is when I was identifying as gay, a lot of the questions that I was dealing with and negotiating were, were around sexuality very much as a core sort of identity. And what does that mean for me as a member of the church? And how do I deal with these scriptures, you know, the clobber passages that we often talk about? And that was very much what my identity and my spirituality was confined to, was answering these questions that were very specifically about what was the gender of the person I was going to end up with going to be. Uh, As I've uh, gotten older, as I've pursued my call into ministry, it's become more important for me to identify as queer. And that's because my identity and the the difference that I live in, because I am a a woman, I'm assigned female at birth, attracted to women, um, all women, cis and trans. And what that has meant for me is more than just my sexuality and more than just the the gender of the person that I'm with. It does actually affect a lot more about the ways that I see the world, the way that I move through the world and the way that I relate to scripture, not just those six or seven verses that are often used against LGBT people. So it's become very important for me to identify as, as queer and to understand that my sexuality actually has a bigger impact than just on my sexuality. And also that it brings me into unity with others. One of the things I know that queer is a, is a difficult term. I'm sure. And you have this conversation. I know often that um, some people really find it offensive, problematic because it's been used as a slur. And then in the younger generations, primarily within the LGBT community, people are finding it more uh, useful as an umbrella term. And Using, finding my primary identity in that reminds me that I am also connected to people who are queer like me, but who are not queer like me in the sense that they are bisexual or pansexual, that they are trans or non-binary or agender, that they are asexual or aromantic. All of us sort of fall into that queer heading. And when I'm more primarily identifying with that, I remember that my struggle, uh, which primarily, you know, ended when we achieved marriage equality in the United States, um, you know, my legal struggles at least, aren't over because I am part of a larger community. So it sounds like queer is a term not only, excuse me, not only connects you more fully into like your body, your experience, it moves you beyond just sex, but it also connects you to a larger community and a larger way of being in the world that goes much further than just yourself. Very much so. Yeah, very much so. And so it's been a, claiming that term has been a way of reminding myself to be more expansive in my understandings, to not be narrow-minded and focused on only the issues that affect me. And to remember, you know, not only are there issues within the queer community that don't affect me, but that I am I am called to participate in, but also that that takes me into other communities as well and, and really does challenge me into understanding the intersections of oppression and privilege. Hmm. So you're a pastor. 
Um, yeah. And I, I would love like, I mean, you, you mentioned scripture, you mentioned kind of the ways that you've moved through scripture and those clobber passages that I think we're all oh so familiar with, but also relating with scripture more fully, more as a whole. Um, I'd love if you could maybe talk about your relationship with scripture, especially as a queer woman who is a pastor. Yeah. Um, so I've had a call to ministry that I've been aware of since about age 14, which is a really fun thing to be both quietly becoming aware of your non-heteronormative sexuality and your call to ministry at the same time. Uh, it's really, it, it really amps up that sense of teenage isolation where like, I'm different <laughs> from everyone. No one is going to understand me. And I was like, no, really, no one is going to understand me. Um, and I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when because I grew, I came of age uh, kind of during the the purity culture, I kissed dating goodbye movement, and that sense of like I'm going to be chased until marriage, I'm going to be celibate until marriage, I'm going to be celibate until uh, God leads me to the person that I'm meant to be with, was this really deep challenge for me in the sense of like what I don't know if I'll ever find somebody else who shares my faith. Um, but yeah, so so when I was primarily identifying as gay, when I was younger, teenage and early 20s, I was really concerned with how to defend myself against the Bible. And I think that's that's an almost necessary process for everyone, um, especially people who don't grow up in affirming families. I was fortunate enough that I did grow up in an affirming family and an affirming church, um, which is miraculous, really. And I am so deeply grateful. But even so, um, I was not you know, sheltered from the conversations that were happening, both at higher denominational levels, you know, just the things that were going out in the news, things that I was encountering online as, you know, we were getting AOL in the house and I was dialing into chat rooms. Um, I was learning that, you know, there were other Christians for whom those those scriptures that I was being taught in confirmation were not applicable, were, and they used them quite mightily against me. And when I came out, I actually lost friends at school because they said, well, that, you know, God says it's not okay. And I'm looking at them going like, what? what? No, like I was specifically taught that that part doesn't apply. Like that part's the same as the not eating pork part. I don't understand where you're getting this. And so I went through this process of, of really, you know, developing all of these different um, theologians call them hermeneutics. And that's a fancy way of saying lenses for reading the Bible. Um, What are the different ways that we come to scripture and understand it and read it? And, uh, I still felt very captivated by the church and by the Jesus story, despite my really tenuous relationship with scripture. And so I pursued my call to ministry and it was in my mid twenties. Um, and it, I, I was at some lecture that Nadia Bowles Weber out in uh, Denver was giving. Uh, she was here in the cities for something. And she talked about how her understanding of her job as a pastor was that she was supposed to be in love with scripture in public. And I remember just thinking, well, shit. (laughs) (laughs) That is not something that I think I can do. I don't think I can be in love with scripture in public. Like, how can I be in love with this text that has been used to abuse me and to abuse my queer family? Uh, I, I don't know how to reconcile myself with this story. 
And the further that I pursued my call to ministry, especially because I was pursuing it within a Lutheran church, which has a deep and long history of um, intentional engagement with scripture and taking scripture very seriously, I had to come to terms with how I was going to love scripture. And uh, it really did feel sort of like an, I don't it's not an appropriate metaphor to use, but because I'm not from a culture that uses arranged marriages, but this is what I imagine arranged marriage is like, is that, you know, I really wanted to pursue my call to ministry and I ended up stuck with a Bible. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to sit down with it and just go like, what am I going to do with you? I have to live with you for the rest of my life and not just, you know, in a, like, a well, I want to be part of a church community, so I have to do it on a Sunday morning. Like, I want this to be my life. And what I ended up doing, I was actually in seminary or finishing seminary at the time when some friends out in um, <clears throat> Madison, Wisconsin, were doing this through the Bible in 90 days. So you read like 16 chapters a day. It's really only a project that pastors or seminarians can have the time to take on. <laughs> Um, And they were doing it with some college kids who were off school for the summer. And so that's what I did is I churned through 16 to 20 chapters in a day and just really forced myself to say, like, if I have to live with it, if if my whole life is going to be a testimony to the fact that there's some sort of truth, some sort of reality in this scripture, despite the fact that I don't believe it's literal word for word King James perfection, what does that mean for me? And what I found was the the more I took seriously my call to ministry, my call to serving as a pastor, the more I deliberately engaged with the Bible and tried to find ways to put my walls down around it. And I was doing this within a community that was very supportive. So that was a huge blessing. That was what changed me was that direct and constant engagement for 90 days and just saying like I'm like I'm going to sit with this text until something good comes out of it um uh Phyllis Tickle talked about in about um I think 2013-2014 she gave an interview and she talked about um the understanding the bible as the stranger who wrestles with Israel um Jacob uh Right, he's he's Jacob when the stranger comes to him and wrestles with him until daybreak, and Jacob gets the upper hand and pins this messenger who's either a messenger of God or is literally God, and says, "I will not let you go until you bless me." And uh, the messenger strikes him on the hip and makes him lame, changes the way he walks for the rest of his life, but also gives him a new name and says, "You will no longer be Jacob, heel grabber, supplanter, one who steals from others, one who takes what is not his. You will be Israel, for you have striven with God and with humanity." And uh, Philistical talked about that as a metaphor for understanding Scripture. Like, I will sit on top of you, like a big brother with his little sibling, until you give me a blessing. Like, I will not let you go. And sometimes that means we are wrestling all night. Um, and yet that metaphor has remained very true for me since then. I call it um, the hermeneutic of the hip in that it's an understanding that you might walk away. And in fact, often when we engage with scripture, we do walk away wounded because of the way others have used it against us. And yet we also walk away blessed. Uh, and that blessing passes on not just to us, but to our our family, whether that's family of origin or family of choice, and to a faith community that's around us. That's so interesting that you bring up the story of Jacob and, and wrestling with the stranger, and that I will not let you go unless until you bless me. 
Because as you were talking, like that was immediately what popped into mind. It was those exact words of like, I will not let you go until you bless me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and I'm wondering then, like as you have intentionally engaged with scripture, as you have been seeped in this world now for a while, what would you say have, like what has that wrestling kind of produced? What has been the blessing? Mm. One of the greatest gifts of the congregation that I serve and the people that are being drawn into it is that um, we're doing intentional, we're creating intentional space for the LGBTQ community um, and both both within sort of our quote unquote normal uh, worship, but then also having specific events set aside for queer and trans Christians to participate in and to really make that a space where we can wrestle with those with our own sort of religious trauma or spiritual struggles that are unique to us. And one of the great things is that that brings a lot of agnostics and atheists out of the woodwork in the neighborhood. And they just start showing up and going like, well, okay, I think this is all potentially ridiculous, but you're doing it in a way that I'm interested in. And I say, great, we have a chair for you. And one of them looked at me and just said like, I just don't get it. I don't get why you think this is true. Or, and like, and I finally just looked at them and I said, I don't know. I'm not really sure that Harry Potter isn't true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they looked at me like, you've lost your mind. And I was like, no, no, no. I mean, in the sense that quotes from Harry Potter are transformative in people's lives. And like the setup of Harry Potter, I mean, we're seeing right now with the teenagers out of Parkland who are doing all of this activist work. Um, you know, we've we've been feeding them this content, right, of Harry Potter and Divergent and the Hunger Games of, like, teenagers who can rise up against an oppressive authority. And it's not real, quote-unquote, in that apparently Hogwarts doesn't actually exist, and that's why I've never gotten my letter. (laughs) And um, it's not real in that sense, but it's true in the sense that it tells us the truth about our lives, about who we are and who we have the potential to be. And that's one of the things I keep trying to mine in scripture, knowing that people are showing up on Sundays and during the week who are like, I don't think I believe in God or in Jesus. I don't really understand what you're getting out of this. And yet they keep showing up. And I'm like, okay, how do I find a truth in this that is, how do I communicate the truth in this that is about more than just, um, as Reverend Broderick Greer says, you know, eternal fire salvation? How do I talk about something that's more true than just, you know, God came down and died for our sins so that we could live forever with him in heaven? Like, what is there actually truth that's transformative in this text for the life that we live now? Is there truth that sets us free from the burdens? Is there truth that's liberative for those who are oppressed? Is there truth that breaks the privilege out of the oppression of their privilege and puts them alongside the oppressed for healing and reconciliation? Um And the answer has always been yes. (laughs) The answer for me has always been yes with scripture is that I keep coming back to it and sitting on it and saying, I will not get up until you bless me. And there's a blessing in it. Um, Yeah. So, for example, um, there's a passage in Matthew. uh, I think it's Matthew 25 that uh, we just finished reading in the liturgical calendar, the lectionary cycle. Uh, We finished it right before Christmas time. And it's the story of the the 10 bridesmaids, the five foolish and the five wise, or that's how we translate it. And we can get into the Greek 
Don't let me get into the Greek because I will never stop. <laughs> My poor text study group has to listen to me do that all the time. Um, but so, so it's the story, right, where these 10 bridesmaids are waiting for the bridegroom and five of them have extra oil and five of them don't. And those who don't have enough oil say to the ones who do, like, give us more, give us some of your oil or we'll run out. And the wise ones say, no, go to the market and buy your own if, you know, we don't, we don't have enough to share. And so the five foolish, unprepared women go to the market to buy their extra oil. And that's when the bridegroom comes. And so the five wise, selfish, horrific, terrible bridesmaids get to go in with the bridegroom and he shuts the door on the five foolish ones who come too late. And he says, depart from me. I never knew ye. And I think there's weeping and gnashing of teeth at the end of it. Um, there might be eternal fire. And so I have all these colleagues who are like, well, how do I preach this story? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this story is literally, you should be selfish just in case Jesus comes back. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, okay. I see that. But my hermeneutic says that I have to sit on this text until it has a blessing for me. And the blessing that I found is that it started to sound a lot like my years in Al-Anon where, um, because I, I grew up in an alcoholic family um, and I have been in relationships with alcoholics, um, uh, recovering alcoholics usually. And a, one of the core principles of Al-Anon is that you can't set yourself on fire to keep somebody else warm. And I started seeing that in those five quote unquote wise bridesmaids who are saying like, no, you can't have my oil. I started seeing, you know, um, women in those bridesmaids saying that to men who are like, you know, explain to me exactly what male privilege is. And the women are going like, no, I'm not going to give you my oil, my time, my my energy, my money to explain something to you that you can easily Google. You know, I started seeing black and other communities of color in the wise bridesmaids looking at the white people and going like, no, I'm not going to keep explaining this to you over and over. If you honestly can't perceive the fact that racism is dominant in American society and still controls the lives of those who are in any way distinguished as non-white, I don't have enough oil to keep giving you. The light is going to go out. And that was a really liberating, like, and so then that's both liberating and challenging, right? In the sense that it's liberating for me when I need to be the person who says, look, I cannot give you more of my oil. You have to do your own work. And it's also a word of challenge to me in saying, like, you can't expect everyone else to make up for your shortfalls. Sometimes you have to hike your butt down to the market and do your own work. Wow. Like, I, I, <laughs> I, I'm sitting here just kind of in, like, Ah, a little bit of, of <laughs> just like of like yes, like the blessing in that, and like you're preaching, and the deep goodness that is in even those passages that we look at and are like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and like, and I think like I think about a professor that I had who he wrote a book called Reading the Bible with the Damned, um, and mm-hmm. his work around the Old Testament in the prison system, and working with inmates and reading scripture and like working to pull out the deep blessings that are present, mm-hmm. even in those texts of like, I mean, we read that book alongside Phyllis Tickle's book um, around feminist hermeneutics on the old Testament. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Texts of terror. Texts of terror. Yes. That one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in the fact that like, I think in the tradition that I grew up in that kind of wrestling was never really allowed. Like 
that kind of sitting and working with the text in ways of like, there is blessing in here somewhere. We just have to find it. Like, ugh, it's such a challenge. Yeah. I think there's that, that presumption in some Christian communities of like, if you don't see the blessing right away, there's something wrong with you, mm. uh, which is so anti-biblical <laughs> because, and I mean that in the literal sense of like, if you look at stories of scripture, there are plenty of people who don't see the blessing right away. Right. Abraham, who seriously messes up, like gets this huge blessing and promise from God and then takes it into his own hands. You know, he believes like, well, God is going to give me a a child and a future. Well, God hasn't done it yet. So clearly God meant for me to sleep with my slave girl and have Ishmael that way. And God is, I I just have to, you know, if if we anthropomorphize God, I have to imagine her putting the divine hands over her face and just going, that's not, it's not what I meant. It's not what I meant. Now I have to go back down there and explain. Uh, And that, that desire to like, I have to understand right away. I have to, I have to see the promise fulfilled right away. I have to find the blessing right away. Um, If I, if I live in a period of doubt or questioning, or if a text comes through to me as painful rather than a blessing, there's something wrong with me. Mm. And that is just so anti-biblical, so anti what the Bible stories actually say about the movement of the spirit. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this concept of blessing. Um, Cause it's something that I've been personally working on in my own life. I think like for the last year, year and a half, but even in the last few weeks, it's something that has popped back up for me of like the practice of blessing, but especially like speaking blessing and, mm-hmm. and speaking blessing over our own lives and, and our hurt parts and the hard parts. And, um, and I'm really curious around, like, I, I, this question isn't fully formed, but what are your thoughts about blessing in general? Like, the power of blessing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such a great question. Let me sit with that for just a second. Yeah. Okay. One of the fascinating things is the way the word blessing, and I actually haven't done a, a deep word study on this Hebrew-wise, so someone wiser than me may be able to correct me, uh, but it functions in so many different ways, right? We t- the, the Psalms especially will talk about, I will bless the Lord, Proverbs talk about blessing the Lord, and that means usually giving praise or giving acknowledgement to God's work. So what has God done in the past? How do we bless God for what God has done in the the history of our lives. And then there's the the idea of receiving a blessing, which is a gift, usually divine. And one of the things that happens is that sometimes those blessings, sometimes those blessings are very specific and sometimes they are not. Um, you know, in the story of, of Abraham, for example, that God says, you know, I will bless you with children, you know, greater, no, I, will, I will bless you with generations more numerous than the stars. That's very vague. I mean, and technically Abraham didn't didn't live long enough to see that many children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Um, you know, that, that blessing did not come true for him in his lifetime. And I think that that difference in time and understanding blessing as a long-term promise is something we miss often. We really turn, uh, I think in our, in our Western and individualized minds, we think like if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, then it's never going to happen. And that was, that would have been different for those um, reading the Hebrew scriptures and, and telling the stories in the original context where y- your, your ancestors are with you in a more immediate way and you carry on that lineage. 
Um, so I think what I'm trying to get at is this idea that blessings are messy and often indistinct and they often completely ruin our lives. Uh, in the, in the very much like, be careful what you wish for, Mm. um, the, the truth will set you free, but first it will destroy you yeah. in, in whatever way that may take shape in someone's life. But I think like blessings, like gifts from God that are unmerited, which is I mean, essentially what we understand gifts from God to be, you know, they're, they're given by grace. Uh, <laughs> they very rarely line up pleasantly with what we'd like to do for our lives. And, um, so yeah, when we're I think I think when we're asking for a blessing, the two dangers we can fall into is either being too specific and therefore you know God's going, "Well, I can't work with this." You know, or being too vague and God going, "Oh, you really want to be that open? You just want to ask for a blessing? Well, okay." <laughs> um, be prepared to have your life turned upside down. And the you know, the the stereotype for that is always the sort of like, "Well, don't tell God you'll go anywhere to serve the mission because then God will send you to Africa." You know, or, or some other terrible foreign country, which is the fear that my fiance actually grew up with. She used to worry that um, that, that was what was going to happen was God was going to send her to Africa to, to preach the gospel. And, you know, what has ended up being her mission is, you know, and her work is that she's this incredible um, person who's, I mean, she's, she's such a dear partner to me and I'm incredibly incredibly lucky like she is my biggest support my biggest cheerleader I would not be where I am in multiple ways without her but also the testimony that's lived out in her life in being this person who has deeply thought about the Catholic roots that she was raised with deeply investigated um you know many different aspects of science because she's a, a a veterinary doctor and also aspects of faith because she's deeply studious and intelligent and she has crafted this beautiful integrated faith which has served as a bridge point for so many and i think that is a blessing right that's a gift from god and yet it's not anything she ever would have even known she wanted to ask for yeah that's i mean that's so interesting because i think because i think sometimes like when we talk about like be careful what you ask for be careful what you wish for like i think our, our minds so often go towards that quote unquote worst case scenario that like I remember like pleading with God when I was like thirteen to being like I'll be a missionary in Africa if you make me not gay. Like that mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. kind of which I mean the problem with like all of that aside <laughs> of, of Africa being that place, like that idea of like God God's blessing won't actually feel like blessing. Like and I wrestle with that theology because I because I also deeply believe that God is fully for us and that mm. God says he will give us the desires of our hearts and mm-hmm. that like and yet the threat that I think we're often told about of God's blessing as if it's something that will not be the desires of our hearts. I, I don't I don't know where I'm going with that. Like <laughs> But I often I often wonder, like I think our desire like when we think about desire and we think about blessing, like I think God gives us our desires and every mm. single one of our desires are a, are a reflection of who God is, no matter what. Like, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't necessarily believe that there's such thing as perverted desire 
I mean, mm. I do and I don't. Like, I, that's a whole conversation. No, that is the struggle, though. Like, how do we distinguish between what is, you know, the image of God that's placed on our hearts and right. how we're seeking to fulfill that in the world versus, I don't talk about, like, being delivered into the power of original sin or the power of the devil. Um, I There was a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I saw in college that basically just formed all of my devil theology, which is um, Hobbes asks Calvin, like, don't you believe in the devil? And Calvin says, I think man is perfectly capable of screwing up on his own. And I'm just like, yeah, I do. I do believe that. I don't really see. Um, and I'm probably going to get angry emails because I said that. Yeah. Um, trying to remember if it was in my ordination vows that I would believe in the devil. I think it was. I uh, hope my bishop's not listening to this conversation. <laughs> um, no, it's fine. Um, but but there, I, I talk a lot about being like being carbon bound creatures, being creatures that are conscious of the fact that we will die and what that does to us. Like, I don't think we need original sin and a serpent and a devil to scare us into terrible behavior. Right. I don't think we are selfish or greedy or power hungry or murderous or self-hating because the de- simply because the devil's got a hold on us. I think it has to do with the fact that we know we're going to die and we're terrified of it. And, um, and that I think can, I don't like the word pervert. I'm with you on that, but that I think can really turn us away from the image of God that is marked in us, in our creation into power, hunger, greediness, fear, anything that we do to try to bolster who we are as we are, um, and to take care of ourselves and to be self-sufficient rather than recognizing that we are part of a community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kinda, that, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say it, it wraps us back around to where we, where I started talking about, um, I've been thinking a lot recently about, um, the, the Parkland high school, the park, kids in Parkland, Florida, who are the ones who are finally able to actually stand up as a coalition and take significant action against the NRA that we're seeing right now and against um, the massive amount of assault weapons and semi-assault weapons that we have in American society and what that means for us. And I remember after Pulse happened um, a year and a half ago that there was this wondering if the LGBT community or the gay community was going to this was going to be our new thing, right? We'd been pushing so hard for marriage equality and this was going to be our new thing. We were going to be the ones who would take down gun violence in America. And there have been really great efforts for that, but like uh, on the whole, we didn't. On the whole, these 17 year olds are significantly giving us a run for our money. And uh, which is great. Go children, go. And it is this interesting, you know, we, we had this coalition where you know, people who wouldn't necessarily be benefited by marriage equality, um, trans people who are still excluded because their gender markers aren't correctly identified, um, people who are, you know, more, who are asexual or who are polygamous and and or, and polyamorous and don't seek, you know, the blessings of a two-person marriage system, still came together to work against anti-marriage equality things in the state and on the federal level, and eventually to work for marriage equality at the federal level. And then once we won that, we all just sort of went home as if like our trans family hasn't been fighting this fight alongside us, hasn't been leading the fight since pre-Stonewall. And I see, I see that kind of brokenness that we talk about when we talk about sin in that we're like, okay, we got what we needed. We're going home. Um, Instead of, okay, we got what we needed. Now we need to be a people 
for others in our community. And I think that is to some degree an indictment against the particularly lesbian and gay leaders of the LGBT community where we just said like, well, okay, we got marriage equality. Like we keep fighting up the adoption stuff state to state. And that's our big thing. And we haven't really stayed together as a group. And yeah, when I talk, when I, when I think about like pursuing our wants versus desires or pursuing like what we think is going to feed us rather than what will actually feed us. That's what I think about is just like, okay, I got what I needed. I'm out of the fight. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think of like, I, I don't know if it's Sarah Coakley, um, mm. but I, I think, I think it's Sarah Coakley or Catherine Tanner talking about sin as, as a turning inwards um, and a, and that, that arc of, of turning inwards upon ourselves. Um, and like, you're I, shaming me because I've just read both of them and I can't remember which one it is. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, good. Good. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's one of those two. Um, yeah, I think and, you're right. I think you're right. And I don't, I, I, I doubt that that thought's original to them. Um, but mm-hmm. cause I, cause I feel like it pops up everywhere, but I, I, mm-hmm. I know it's one of them who, who established that, flushed that all out. Um, and and I th- like I think like I as we talk about this idea of like the devil and and like it's I mean well within Christian orthodoxy not to believe that the devil is an embodied being um, absolutely and like that's not outside the realms of Christianity at all but but that whole idea of turning inward focusing mm-hmm. on ourselves um, desire like. And and that wrestling back and forth with what opens us up, what turns us in, um, and and how do we live out blessing in the world? Like I feel like that's kind of what we're talking about. Like, mm-hmm. and one of the one of them, the critiques of incurvatu say, which comes out of or sorry, um, so incurvatu say is the Latin phraseology for the turning inward. So yeah, it goes back to at least medieval theology. Um, and one of the feminist theology critiques of Incurvatu say, and this shows up a lot also in womanista and Muharista theologies, is that it disregards uh, the way that women, and especially women of color, are forced to turn away from themselves by society. Like, you're supposed to give up of yourself for your family, for your children, for whatever. Um, and then that gets adapted into church language. Like, you're supposed to be humble. You're supposed to, you know... that acronym that gets handed around sometimes in, in, uh, you know, if you want true joy, it's Jesus first, others second, and yourself last, right? J-O-Y. And the critique from feminist theology is like, that's not actually, that's not, that's, that's not it either. Like that's not, that's not a way of flourishing either. Um, And what I think like we flourish when we flourish, um, you know, it, it does not say Jesus came to give us a small life or to break us down into tiny pieces so that we would serve others, but rather that um, the, the proclamation of the Gospel of John is, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and again, like, I, and I know this is Catherine Tanner. Like, she talks about that, that filling up, we have to fill ourselves up in order to be able to then overflow. Like, that, that work of God happens in the overflowing as opposed to the emptying of ourselves and it's a different kind of emptying than I think what Christ talks about but like it's an mm-hmm. it's an overflowing of God's goodness and abundance from our own lives that comes from us being full instead mm-hmm. and fulfilled um instead of that continual giving up of our very beings mm-hmm. um, 
Mm. It's such a, a different picture than that Jesus first, others next, yourselves last, or whatever that was. Right, like, yeah. that's, yeah, that's not what we're called to. One of the things that's so interesting for me um, as I'm doing work with specifically LGBTQ people who are pursuing an integrated Christian faith is the diversity of need. You know, that there are people who, there are people for whom the proclamation of turning away from incurvatu say, of letting go of the self as the core thing, that's, that's important. And in fact, that was, you know, central in a Western colonialist, individualized faith of like, let go of turning in towards yourself. Christ has come to free you from the sin of turning in towards self and turning out you know, to, to make you turn out towards others. And that has been an incredibly powerful message. But for so many in the, the queer Christian community, that's not our quote unquote original sin. And it, I think what's going to come for us as far as a, a reformation within the queer and Christian communities is distinguishing what we, what our spiritual needs are once we get through the, the threshold of finding a welcoming and affirming community, whether that's a worshiping community, whether that's online, whether it's a house church. Um, but there are some of us whose um, wounds don't, whose wounds are transformed, who, who find balm the moment that we cross the threshold of a worshiping community that's affirming. Like, people who say like i didn't even know there was an affirming church and they walk in and they're done like that's they, they the spiritual wounds are healed for them just by finding that welcoming and affirming space and then there are others for whom um you know there's sort of in the space that i am where like i'm carrying this spiritual trauma from having my holy text used against me in violence but that also, and that you know, now that I'm healing that wound, that makes me look towards other groups that have been oppressed, either systematically in a in a secular way or by the same text. Right? We start reading books about um, scriptural affirmation for slavery pre-Civil War, scriptural affirmation or scriptural passages used against interracial marriage when that was an issue. You know, passages used against systematically destabilizing the racist structure of our society, things like that. Um, so there's that community, right. That says, you know, my marginalization has opened me up to other marginalization and I need to pursue that in a Christian forum. There are others who the spiritual trauma runs so deep that we have to spend a lot of time and a lot of care in crafting spaces for them. I see um, in worshiping and in, in worship spaces and in Bible studies, I see the people who flinch when I say sin, right? Because it's been used so often against us that that word is now broken for us. And it can't be you know, like the, the process of reclamation of that word or the process of finding a different word to put in there to help us reattach to the concept. Um, that's a whole nother journey. And I think one of the things we maybe haven't done on a systematic level is figure out like, how do we assess where we're at as far as what our spiritual needs and our spiritual trauma are and how do we move forward on that 
because we're looking at, you know, like someone's looking at me and going like, why are you so concerned with racial issues? Why do you even care about the Bible? Like, this is stupid. I don't even like the Bible. I just like the Jesus thing. And then someone else is looking at us and going like, why do you even care about either of these things? Because like, we have a place to be, we're welcome. Who cares about the rest of it? And we're missing each other sometimes in that communication of like, we're, we're all experiencing a similar deep need for healing but it takes place in such different ways. Um, and I see I mean, one of the things that I love about scripture is that it has metaphors for so many of those different needs. Um, there's so much, so much truth in the stories, um, in the, in the varied and, and diverse stories. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I feel like there's so much, like in the metaphor and in that wrestling for the blessing, like mm-hmm. there's so much healing available and, and present just in that text, like mm-hmm. in, in ethereal ways, like inexplicable ways. It, it feels like to, to turn to the very text that has hurt us um, so much for that healing seems like a very odd and strange thing to do. And yet it's there sometimes. Right. Yeah. And sometimes not. Yeah. But, <laughs> right. Sometimes not. And yeah. then you need to have a good leader and a good sense of self to be able to say like, nope, the blessing's not in there for me today. How am yeah. I going to reconstruct myself before I walk out of here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Emmy, thank you so thank much. Thank you. This was just delightful. And and you're, I mean, you're speaking at Why Christian here in a couple of weeks. I am. Oh my goodness. That is a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, I am. I'll be talking at Why Christian. Um, it's going to be absolutely fantastic. I've been to the last two. I can't even say how honored I am that I get to speak at it now and join that uh, roster of women and of gay and trans men who have spoken. And um, it, I, I just, I have goosebumps yeah. and I'm also terrified and may go need to vomit out of anxiety for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then once Why Christian is over, I know my editor is listening. Lisa, I promise I will get you a manuscript yes. because I'm working on a book. Oh my um, gosh, yes. <laughs> and the, the book is about, um, it's essentially about what we've been talking about, about the reclamation of scripture, about like what it means to come back to scripture and claim it from a marginalized place and recognize that it's a story for a marginalized people and from a marginalized people. Mm-hmm. And how do we start to really find ourselves in that text again, when it's been used against us in a variety of ways. Yeah. And I'm so, so, so lucky. I have, a, I have a fantastic editor. I'm working with a great publishing house. Um, and I promise Lisa, you will have a manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. And then, you know, doing the pastor thing right. all day, every day, which I love. Yeah. I love, I really, I serve the most incredible community. Can I, can I put in a plug for our Please little? do. Please okay. do. Yes. Uh, if you, uh, if you're a listener in the twin cities of Minnesota, St. Paul and Minneapolis, uh, we have a worshiping community that gathers once a month in the evenings. That is a blend of mainline and evangelical traditions that is specifically centered in the experience of being LGBTQ and Christian. So all of our leaders, speakers, communion servers, we're all LGBTQ and Christian. We also have a game night going for just regular um, community and fellowship and a Bible study for engaging with the text um, using one of the one of my favorite Bible studies. And just how, how do we come back to the text and, and re-experience the Bible in a way that's as gift and blessing rather than as curse? Mm-hmm. And 
condemnation. You can find more about that if you follow me on Twitter at Emmy Kegler, or you can check us out on Facebook at um, like facebook.com slash QGCOMM for Queer Grace Community. And I will put links to all of those things in the show notes so people can just find those in there. Um, Yeah. And we will look forward to your book. Like, my goodness, that's super exciting. So, yeah. Terrifying. But yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, blessings to you. (laughs) No, thank you. I have had enough upendings in my life. I am good. No, and I do want to say what a blessing you are and this podcast is for so many to be able to connect us um, across. I mean, I was going to say across America, and then I realized, like, no, across the world. Um, The the care that you take with putting everything together with editing assembling music choices i am always just so impressed and so Mm. moved by your graciousness and your engagement and i am so grateful for you and you are a blessing Mm. thank you thank you with that (laughs) (laughs) thank you like Emmy said, you can catch her at the Y Christian Conference that's coming up here in the middle of March in Durham, North Carolina. That's a conference put on by Nadia Bolz Weber and Rachel Held Evans. Uh, I'm going to be there as well. Uh, you can also keep up with her work over at emmykegler.com. Uh, she's on Twitter and Facebook at emmykegler. Uh, Quirology is on Twitter and Instagram at Pod, Or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Chorology is produced with support from Natalie England, Tim Schrader, and Christian Hayes, along with many other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can help support Chorology, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. Another really easy way to help support Chorology is by leaving a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com review. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas about what you want to hear on the podcast or if you just want to say hi, reach out. Until next week, y'all. Bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.